Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week, I sit down with the founding team of Scatterspoke, John and Colleen. I like their story of how it kind of started almost as a lark, something to learn some new technology. And, you know, it's kind of a hobby that turned into a business and now a pretty successful business. By the time this goes live, they should be uh, at or, or above 12K a month in MRR. It gives you some type of, of scope of where they're at. And they're growing pretty quickly in the 10% per month range. So from my observation, they've, they've hit product market fit and they are getting towards that point of escape velocity, working diligently towards it. So I hope you enjoy my conversation today with John Samuelson and Colleen Johnson, the co-founders of Scatterspoke. John and Colleen, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having us, Rob. Yeah, it's great to chat with you again. I know we did a microconf on air a few weeks back, but for folks who, who didn't see that, they certainly heard about Scatterspoke in the intro of this episode, or they may have also heard that you are in Tiny Seed Batch 2. And Scatterspoke, your, your H1 on your website is, it's time to have a smarter retrospective. We are improving the way teams improve. And you're focused on helping people have better retros. This is an agile methodology, the agile uh, software development methodology. And you guys have been working on this for several years now, right? It's, it's yeah, three or three and a half years ago by now. Yeah, it's definitely ebbed and flowed for us. I think we actually bought the domain name in 2015 and then really, you know, threw some stuff together and didn't do anything with it for for probably two years. So it's been around for a while, but not in the shape and form that it is today. So that was a big relaunch effort that we did in 2018 to really build it into the tool that it is today where, where you register and have your, you know, invite your team members and can buy an upgraded plan with more features. And none of that was there for the first three years of, of us just squatting on the domain name, basically. Right, right. Yeah, my memory, I have a few notes from your tiny seed application and also from memory was that like the first year, year and a half, it was a tool that was up there for free. There were no accounts. It was just like a really super basic thing. But then you added analytics to it and noticed that like, hey, people are actually using this thing and maybe we could could kind of launch a business around it. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I built it to, to learn new technologies. I've always been a Java developer and I wanted to learn this new thing called Node.js. And so that's kind of what started it all and yeah we just put it online you could go to it and basically press a button and share a link and a million people could use it that would probably crash our server but yeah that's exactly how it started and you you built this tool because colleen is is well known in this space right she has this personal brand in the agile space and you've done a lot of of speaking and and writing and are considered kind of a an influencer yeah, yeah, I've been in the software industry for about 20 years and in the agile space for about half of that. And it really helped me fill an immediate need I had in, in consulting when teams would either cancel a retro because somebody was out or not be able to have the retro because not everybody was in the same location. And so we kind of combined John's interest in learning some new technology with an immediate need I had. And it was great because I was able to really take it with me, not just to clients, but also into training sessions large conferences. We we were able to run retros after conferences or public speaking events. And so we were starting to get a lot of traction really organically without ever spending any money on marketing. And then also getting lots of feedback organically. 
Was that essentially your how you got early customers and, and did early customer development was just by going to these events, speaking and having people kind of use it, try it out and give you feedback? Yeah, definitely. It was probably for the first two years, that was all that we were, you know, that was how we were getting customers and users and it was how we were getting feedback. And then when we added the ability to register an account, once John dug into our Google Analytics and was like, holy sh**. There's a lot of people using this. We set up the ability to have a user account and then added Drift to the site. And then that was another kind of another change point for us where we started to get real-time feedback on where people were getting stuck or where they had questions about the tool or or were requesting features that we didn't have yet. Yeah, that's super cool. I mean, it's it's always fun to hear. I mean, this truly is like a maker story where John wants to learn new technology. Colleen has experience in this space or in this niche and is, is a bit of an influencer there. And and you kind of sound like you maybe built it on a whim a little bit or you're like, hey, this will be a fun lark, a fun, you know, little project. And you, and you put it up for a year, year and a half and really doesn't even have the ability to register for an account. But then there's just so much usage. It's that free tool. Some people go the open source to, to business route, but you just went literally like free tool to business path. I think in some ways being kind of a maker project hurt us early on. We, you know, John was excited to try out new technology and I was so close to the teams using it that every time we heard feedback about the simplest thing, we tried to go implement that or change something pretty dramatic in the tool. So we were almost being in some ways, maybe too too reactive or too close to what we were building. And I think it took us a while to start to take a step back and say, how do these things help drive business and help us look at this more as a business instead of just kind of a hobby or a pet project? Yeah, there's something I wrote about in my first book, and I called it Project Product Confusion, where developers do this especially. I did this in the early days where I would have this great idea for this project of it's a web app that organizes my my Audible library, or it keeps me in touch with any author who I enter into the system, I suddenly get an update when they publish a new book, or just whatever. And it's an interesting idea for a project. But turning that into a product that actually makes money and enough money that it's worth spending time on is a huge, huge difference. And the maker in me always wanted to make cool stuff. And in fact, I made a bunch of cool stuff, but I, I always kind of thought they would become revenue generating products. And that was a big, I don't know, mistake, but it was definitely, I was a a little bit delusional, I think, in, in thinking those, those could be that. And so I could totally see how building this, it sounds like you almost aired on the other side where you, you built this free tool to learn a new technology. And because you happen to be in the space and then didn't necessarily think of it as as much of a business as perhaps you could have. And, and you know, judging by your progress to, to date, it's obvious that this can be a, a successful, revenue-generating, profitable business. And I think it's, if you're going into it with that, with that maker-creator mindset, it's not that you can't do that. I mean, I've seen, have I seen many six-figure SaaS businesses built with that? Absolutely. Have I seen many seven-figure businesses, SaaS businesses built with that mindset? A lot fewer you know, and probably zero eight-figure businesses that I think about. I mean, if you, if you truly want to make stuff, awesome. And that's how when I started out, it was just like, I want to build cool shit. I want people to use it and I want to be able to live off the revenue. And if that's all you need, that's great. And I got up to about 120K, 150K a year in revenue and that was amazing. But when I wanted to shift gears and get up to take that next step and be like, hey, I want to build a seven-figure or multiple seven-figure business, I do think that you have to start maybe shifting the mindset a little bit. And you told me before we hit record that, you were focused on kind of the the small agile teams, but then enterprises would come and they would ask for features that you necessarily, you weren't necessarily thinking about or that interested in building, but you did make the shift and decide to 
to build those things for those larger teams. You want to talk me a little bit through how that process went and why you decided to go down that road instead of just keeping it as a true kind of, hey, I'm a maker and this is my vision, you know, and I'm going to build the product that I want, even if it does, you know, hurt our growth in essence. Yeah. So after that first year of launch, when we decided to make it a business and we were certainly focused on smaller teams, it was a brutal year. I mean, people had never given us that much authentic feedback about what sucks or what wasn't working. It was hard. I mean, there was a lot of bugs to get through and that, that was one thing, but people can be ruthless and it kind of cuts you deep. And actually, we, we were getting to the point where we were like, you know what, let's go back to the maker mindset because this is just not fun or have it be more of a passive business. And then out of nowhere, a giant enterprise deal kind of showed up and they were very interested in it with some contingencies of we want these 10 features. If you build these 10 features, we'll sign a deal. And we looked at them and we're like, we'll make these our own. And these wouldn't be our first choice of what to do. But we did it. And then that's kind of when the light bulb went off. I think big enterprises are where all the money's at for us. And most of these come with some kind of custom features. And we got to get good with wanting to build those. And it's been a game changer ever since. Yeah, you mentioned that, and this was about a year and a half ago, in early 2019, you mentioned that you had been grinding it out for so long on the side, and that you were considering, like, should we even do this? It's not making enough money to make it worth it. And then this enterprise comes along. And, and it's that realization, I think so many entrepreneurs especially developers. I think we see the model of the base camps and the MailChimps where it's like, hey, I can build a product for 10 bucks a month or 30 bucks a month and I can do the SMB, you know, the, the small business thing, the self-service. And that's the business that I want to build because I've seen that model. It sounds like fun and I don't have to do you know, high touch sales and deal with these big enterprises with the six month sales cycles and the security reviews and all that. And while that is totally possible, it is not actually the optimal way that, I, that, you know, in my experience to build a big business quickly. Really, if you look at more the Saster model, which is it's going after the big ticket, the Fortune 1000 or the Fortune 5000, and it's the high touch sales and it's big contract values. And that tends to get you there faster. But even I would propose it as good as or better than that is this model that I think several folks in the tiny seed batches have, and, and you guys have it as well, is this dual funnel is what I've been calling it, where you do have that high-end enterprise funnel. And you do have folks coming in paying, let's say, tens of thousands a year is how I think about kind of an enterprise sale. But you also have this nice influx of folks on the on the lower end, you know, small teams, maybe it's a free plan, maybe it's the $10, $50, $100 a month plan that you get a lot of volume through and that tend to be a lot lower touch, but you get a lot of users and therefore you get that kind of brand momentum because the more users you have there, oftentimes there's more word of mouth that then can lead to the the enterprise funnel. Have you guys ever thought about this in terms of that? Like, hey, we do, we have two really different funnels and, you, and do you handle those differently in terms of how much touch how much onboarding, you know, perhaps how much support that you offer the, the two types of customers? Yeah, I think I think the concept in general has been pretty new for us in the last year, but definitely eye-opening in the sense that there's there's value in both. Like you said, the overhead to get those those small teams in the system and onboarded is really low. It's self-sign up. They pick their subscription and invite their team. And there's usually not a whole lot of overhead for us versus that, like you said, those big enterprises can take you know, up to six months to go through a security review and legal back and forth on contracts. And then add in, like John said, those custom feature requests. 
And our time to get them in is quite a bit longer, but usually once we have them, their their contracts are anywhere from a year to three years, maybe longer. There's value in both of those channels for us because the one that requires more time obviously pulls us away from doing a lot of other stuff. I think the other thing, though, is in some ways that middle tier, like you described, is a little bit of a, a gateway drug for some of these other organizations, right, where they want to test it out maybe in a pocket of an organization that's a huge, you know, a huge company. They might use the team subscription plan or a business subscription plan to try some of the features out before going to the enterprise. And so that's also been a nice funnel for us of people coming in and trying some of this stuff out before jumping all the way to enterprise. So I think we found kind of a, a couple different channels or combinations of good paths through those different offerings. I'll just add to that too, something that was kind of a, well, it's a surprise a bit. Like I mentioned, we built a bunch of custom features for that big enterprise client. Those features now work for all of our small teams just as well, right? So we built these enterprise-grade features for these guys that wanted them, and it's actually helped the smaller end funnel a lot. How has it helped them? So a good example in our tool, we have something called facilitators controls. So in the beginning, we were just like, every this should be a democracy. Everybody should just be able to do whatever. Everybody can have controls to take over the retro. This big enterprise said, no, no, we want somebody to be in charge, right? So they run the meeting. And we don't force that to happen. You can kind of do either or. But it turns out these smaller teams, they also like that to have a facilitator take charge of a meeting. And we were of the opinion that everybody, it should be a democracy, not have a hierarchical role set. So it was actually a blessing that we made that because it's definitely helped us out on both ends of the funnel. Yeah. And I think we figured out a way to do it to still kind of support that model, like John said, to make it optional so that the functionality is there if you want to use it, but it's not a requirement. And that's kind of a path we did with a lot of our different, a lot of what we offer in the tool so that it's the functionality is there if you want it. But also, if you don't want to use it, you don't have to. It's like none of it's forced. And I think that's something we learned throughout this process too, that the more we could make self-service inside the tool, the more we'd be able to serve both of those different client paths. That's an elegant balance to strike because oftentimes enterprises want really, they want large clunky things. They want a ton of settings. They want checkboxes everywhere. And if you want a easy to use self-service tool, you don't want 50 checkboxes in your settings. You know, you tend to want to be more, a little more opinionated in your software. So if if you've been able to strike a balance with that, I think that and and be able to have the enterprise features help the smaller teams and potentially vice versa, that's a really a nice way to go so that you're not trying to build because the fear is always that you're almost like building two products in one and it becomes Frankenstein. It's like our enterprise customers want all this crap and our our small teams want all this stuff. And we have to build it into the same product, but it should maybe be two different products, really. So, you know, if you're able to strike that balance, that's a really nice way to go. I think the only thing we've ever really said no to from a you know a large enterprise request is our tool is completely anonymous and we did that by design right to create safety and you know safety in your answers and being able to be really honest with your feedback that you're providing to your team and if you want to put your name on it great but we've had requests from small businesses and large businesses to go back and either toggle that on and off or we even had one request one time where somebody was like I need you to tell me who wrote this exact card <laughs> we were like um, 
No. So that was like, I'd say that's the only thing that we've really pushed back on from a feature perspective, just because it was so core to how we wanted the tool to function that we weren't willing to, to bake that in for any contract. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm thinking back to your timeline and, you know, you think early 2019, you're questioning like, was this a, was this the right thing to do to double down on this business? And then you get this enterprise customer who's or prospect who says, Hey, build these 10 things and we'll pay you a lot of money in essence. So you said yes to it, you built it, you get them onboarded. But at that point, you're still not making enough to quit the day job, right? So I'm curious, John, during that year, because you you know you applied to Tiny Seed in November of 2019, so somewhere between early 2019 and, and getting funded from Tiny Seed, which I guess was just about a year, I think we funded in February or March of, of this year. So it had been about a year that you were kind of toiling away. You were essentially, you, you guys are married, you have small kids, you were basically working all nights and weekends, right? And how, how did that take its toll on on you, your mental health, your marriage, how, however you want to describe it? I'm just going to make the assumption that this was not an easy time for you. And I'm curious, there's got to be folks in the, in the audience who that resonates with. I mean, the biggest thing to me is I can work long hours. I can work hard. That's, that's just part of who I am. But it's more of a guilt problem to me. And what I mean by that is like, if I'm not at my W-2 job and I'm at home and it's a Saturday and I take four hours to go to the park with the kids, I mean, that's four hours that I should should or could be working. And then it's the opposite. It's true too. If I spent those four hours on a Saturday working instead of being with my family, I feel guilty the other way. So I feel like the deck stacked against you. You feel guilty no matter what you do. It's like, I have to make this business happen, or and I also need to be a good father and husband. So that's by far, in my opinion, the worst part of it. It's not working long hours. We can get through that. It's it's guilt. Yeah, Colleen, you have any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I would totally agree. And I think the the hard part is finding that balance. We, I think, are always trying to teach teach our kids like work hard, play hard mentality too. But it's that making space for making space for the play hard, right? It's easy when you have the day job or the W-2 job and this becomes a night and weekend project to feel like there's never time to enjoy it or never time to play. And I think, you know, taking the tiny seed investment and being able to go full time on this really changed the course of that for us. Although COVID definitely threw a little bump in that road. For real. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you about that later, but let's talk about it now. I mean, you mentioned offline to me, one of the most painful parts of the, you know, the recent couple of years is you finally get to the point, you're having enough success, you apply to tiny seed, you, you get the funding and you're able to quit the day job and then really focus on Scatterspoke. And then COVID hits, right? As, as all this happens. So now all your kids are at home. So you don't actually have, you know, all the time or, or perhaps all the uh, the mental bandwidth. And maybe like me, because I have three kids that are here at home, I'm working at home during the day and I'm feeling a little guilty that I'm not with my kids, which isn't isn't okay. I should have some, some time to work and, and feel okay about it. So I'd, I'd just love to hear more of your thoughts on that whole experience and, and on how you guys, how that felt and how you guys have dealt with that. Yeah. So I quit my, my day job in February, early February, 2019. And I, I mean, I love the company I was at, so it was kind of a hard departure in general. But the day I quit, the next few weeks, I felt, uh, and I think I said something like this to you before, like I felt like the king. Like I was getting all this time to do all this work 
every day and it was awesome and we like it felt like the needle moved very quickly from where we had been and then all of a sudden COVID hit and all the kids were home and it was basically I don't want to quite equate this to having a job but it's a job like when all the kids are at home and you know you're making lunches and chasing a two-year-old everywhere so it was very quickly like that flame that spark that I had from finally getting there which in a lot of ways was kind of like the first big goal right to quit your day jobs like I made it and then a month goes by and then it just get, got ripped away by COVID and I mean I'm not mad that I got I mean in a lot of ways this is the best time of our lives we were spent so much time with our kids but it, it sucked it was like going back to having a job again and yeah it was very rough yeah, it sounds like it. And just to clarify, you said you quit your job in February of 2019, but it was 2020. It was just a few, uh, so it was about a, yes. within, within a month the lockdown started. Yeah, exactly. And something that that we had also talked about, I know that that at a certain point, this is before quitting your job, but you had tried to hire out some of the development because you just couldn't keep up with feature requests, as often happens. You know, you, you guys started with a free tool, and then even once you started charging, had a free plan, and so you have a lot of users in there asking for features. And I think you you made a mistake that I think a lot I, that I made as well, and I think a lot of us do is. Hiring friends instead of going to Upwork or going whatever you're going to do, outsourcing to you know maybe maybe it's offshore or maybe it's not, but it's it's finding people where you can have a, a single relationship with them. Hey, I'm the employer in essence, and, and you're the the contractor. When you hire friends, you have a dual relationship, and that makes things complicated. You want to talk people through your uh, experience with that? Yeah, I mean, I think as engineers over the years, I've I've been not not even our project, but I've been in other people's projects where it's like, hey, we should totally build a thing, and you do that, and they usually don't go anywhere. And so when when I had Scatterspoke going on, and I, this happened a few times, I tried paying my friends. I tried just like let's do a trial period, and if this works out, maybe we can talk about equity. And really what happens is that you get all excited and you sit down and you have like one great meeting where you're like, all right, you're going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then the weeks start piling up and they slowly are not doing anything. And there's just not a lot of accountability because they're your friends and often friends in professional settings, like at your day job. So it's hard to really come down on them because that. And at the end of it, I usually would just, you know, cut ties with them and say, look, this just isn't working out. It's not a big deal. Let's just move on. And yeah, I've I've changed that to hiring people I don't know and specifically hiring people not in the U.S. And I have a whole rant about that. But um, I've found developers in Europe especially just seem to not be so whiny, just to put it blunt. <laughs> but I, I'm a U.S. developer. I can say these things. <laughs> I was whiny when I was a U.S. developer too. I'll admit it. I, I mean, we all are. We all get so used to these, you know, tech startups, and everybody in the company treats you differently because you're the tech guys. You know how to do all this. I don't know. It's a whole nother thing. But anyways, our business changed when, and this was actually one of the good things about COVID is I when I was started slowing down, not having more time. That's when I found an offshore developer that really worked and you could give them your requirements and they just were pretty self-sufficient and get stuff done and you tell them when you want it done and it was done by then. 
Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's, it doesn't always work out that way, of course, but it's nice that you either got lucky or, or interviewed well or whatever and were able to turn that corner because I think as a developer, outsourcing development can be a real challenge because I'm going to put this in quotes, no one can ever write code as good as I can. Like this is whatever, this is the internal <laughs> monologue of every developer ever. And so it is nice that you're able to, to essentially get parts, parts of that off your plate. Do you still write much code in the product or are you just doing more technical direction at this point? So I do both, but I do the stuff that's, that's hard or tricky. Like we're working on some more pricing stuff right now. Like that, I do all that stuff. I just don't trust yet somebody else to do that. But general, like, hey, go build these screens to do this other thing. It's fine. They can go do that. And and honestly, you, you got to let go at some point. You cannot hold everybody to your standards. And, and at the end of the day, and after being an engineer for many years, it doesn't matter if, you know, the buttons work. There's so many big systems are built with duct tape and they work. So you got to get over that as a technical founder. Yeah, I agree. That was when I started becoming much more effective as a business owner when I learned that too. And it took me many years, took me at least, took me too long, took me five, six years of running software projects and products. And I was still mingling in the code and still making tweaks. And eventually I became uh, more, more valuable to the companies, you know, once I outsourced my own, (laughs) my own development. As we move towards wrapping up, I want to dig into this, um, your free plan and raising prices once you got into Tiny Seed. I'm curious, Colleen, do you remember when the two of you, we, we do, so for folks, you know, Tiny Seed, obviously, uh, startup accelerator for SaaS companies, and you apply and then you do Zoom calls with myself and Anar and Tracy and sometimes other folks to kind of find out more about you and your company. We ask questions and, and all this stuff. And... I remember, I think Anar may have talked to John and, and one of the things Anar said is Scatterspoke's awesome, like them, they have a free plan. I'm not sure that's a good idea. And, and I think the pricing is messed up in essence, isn't, isn't accurate, which is very, very common. Uh, I think most of us, probably 70% of founders who haven't given a lot of thought to pricing have screwed it up in, in some way or another in their product. But then when I was on the call with the two of you and I started digging into the numbers of like, what did their free plan convert and you know, what's your pricing? Do you remember one of the early things I said about the free plan? Do you remember what my sen- general sentiment was? I don't remember. <laughs> no. I... Okay, which is fine. It was like nine months ago, so I don't expect you to. My memory was that my first thought was, you need to kill the free plan. Like there was just, it just didn't make sense. Like the numbers didn't make sense to me. And that's not a blanket statement of free plans don't work because that's not, that's not true. We see free plans work and it wasn't a blanket statement of uh, this will never work, but it was kind of a first instinct of like, wow, you have that many people using it and so few are converting and maybe it's too permissive, which I think you guys, you actually knew that as we were talking. But so that was something that you have since done, right? At this point you have a free trial, but you can't sign up for a free plan anymore. Yeah, we're in the process right now of killing that actually. So we redid um, our pricing tiers first and kind of gave everybody some some grandfathered users an option with those new new pricing tiers and we're about to roll out what will essentially kill the free tier. And it was hard. It's I mean, it's still a little hard for me to let go of it. And I think it's kind of back to being in some ways like too close to our user base. I feel like we built this off of people getting to try it and people who knew me or attended my classes or workshops or whatever being that user base. I feel like I lured them in and then now I'm like, no, you can't use it anymore. But I think we have reached the maturity as a business that you know, it isn't a hobby and it isn't a free tool. And we know the value is there and that people are willing to pay for it. So it's, you know, it's kind of time. It's time to grow up. 
Yeah, I like that you said that it's hard because it is. And that's what I don't think. I think, you know, there is a common conversation in the microconf community of, hey, charge more, raise prices, everybody's undercharging. And most of the time, that's honestly true, especially if you've never really raised prices or never looked at your pricing. But that discounts the, the emotional side of things, both the, the relationship you have with your users and also the fear. Raising prices is really scary. Killing free plans is really scary. Adding or removing credit card before a free trial is really scary. I've done all of those things. And every time I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work. And if it doesn't, maybe I'm going to make a bunch of people mad. And am I going to kill my business with this? And I think that was something, and that is something we've done pretty intentionally in the first month or two of, of Tiny Seed of the batch is to say, hey, who, who here thinks they have a pricing issue? You know, and again, it's typically like 70% of the, you know, batch two raise their hand in, in, in the Zoom call. But then it's to help folks think through not only, you know, how they can actually change it mechanically but and logistically, but like how to deal with the emotion of that and how to convince people, hey, if this doesn't work, it's pretty easy to roll back. That this is not an undoable decision. And given how large of a lever, like I keep saying pricing is the number one lever in any business, but especially in SaaS where it's recurring, pricing is your number one lever. It's the easiest thing to change and to double growth overnight. Everything else requires more customers or it requires more features or it requires something else, but just to change a number on a page and in your Stripe account and have it suddenly change it is a, is a big deal. So it deserves a lot more thought, I think, than, than most founders think. But sir, I mean, all that is to say, how did you deal with or, or get through or push through that emotional resistance, you know, whether it's the fear or whether it's just a nagging doubt of like, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. I'm curious how you push through that in order to make such a drastic change. I mean, honestly, once you see that Stripe account number go up and up, right, and you see those trials convert, it's pretty easy to support it. And I think that that's, that was the proof for me. And I think, you know, you're still offering, to me, it was like, we're, we built this tool to help teams and to make this easier. And I didn't, I felt like I was taking that away from them <laughs> by removing the free tier. But I think what you see as you, as you go down this path is, the value is still there. You're just asking, you know, them to pay to get that value. And when once we, you know, once we start to see all the conversions and honestly, like new enterprise contracts coming in now, it's, um, I think, really just supported that this is, the value is something worth paying for. Awesome. Well, we're at time. Thank you so much, John and Colleen, for joining me today. If folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you're at Scatterspoke. And Colleen, you are at Scrum Hive. I like that. That's a cool, that's a cool uh, agile Twitter handle. And then of course, scatterspoke.com. If folks want to check out, you know, what you've been working on and potentially uh, check you out for doing their retrospectives. So thank you guys so much for joining me on Startups of the Rest of Us. Thanks, Rob. Thanks again to John and Colleen for joining me on the show today. If you're interested in potentially joining Tiny Seed Batch 3, head over to tinyseed.com and get your name on our email list. I believe we'll be opening applications again here in the next four or five months. In addition, if you are an accredited investor and you're interested in investing in early stage B2B SaaS companies like Scatterspoke and other Tiny Seed companies that you've heard on this podcast, head to tinyseed.com slash thesis and you can see our unique investment thesis that we have at Tiny Seed and why we believe that uh, B2B SaaS is, you know, an amazing investment and to be able to basically index across hundreds of these SaaS companies and, and diversify an investment is, is a, a solid way to go. So you can learn more about that 
tinyc.com slash thesis. Thanks so much for joining me this week. I'll see you again next Tuesday morning.